we want to turn to our scripture passage today, which comes from Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. And just a little bit of FYI, uh, we are going paperless with our bulletin, so that's why we don't have a physical copy, but it's always posted on our website. Uh, on the visit tab, there should be a mobile booklet option. Um, it's actually ready by Saturday, so if you guys want to like print it rather than looking at your screens, that's always, uh, that's always doable for you as well. That option's there. Um, but Mark chapter 12, verse 12 through 13 through 17, um, as we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, what we've been figuring out, at least for this section of Mark, is that Jesus is being challenged left and right. Uh, what started off is that Jesus cleansed out the temple, saying that you guys are just worshiping me with a routine, but you're not really engaged with me. You're not really engaged with God. And so he's completely taking away this temple system, what the Jewish people were used to. And now the religious leaders, the elites, they're angered by this. And so they're like testing Jesus and saying, what gives you the right to do this? His, his authority is being challenged. But what does Jesus, Jesus really want us to see right, through this challenge? He wants us to see what it really means to really live a life with him. And so in this passage, we're going to see the challenge, and we're going to see why Jesus, how Jesus deals with this challenge um, together from chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. And if you guys are able, can you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give him our full attention today. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we, or, or should, should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue, may he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer? Um, Lord, as we come before you, all of us at some point have challenged the kind of authority that you have in our lives. It's a tricky subject for all of us because to place ourselves truly under someone's authority, it, it's unsettling. Because we have opinions, we have thoughts, we have ideas of how our lives should work out. But God, as we come to worship you, the act of just sitting here is a reminder that maybe we don't have it all figured out. Maybe we could be wrong about how we look at life. And maybe your ways are higher than ours. So there, may there be a great sense of this as we come before you this morning. We pray and ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know when the worst day of the year is? 
Anyone know? Anyone care to take a guess? The worst day of the year is April 15th. Because that's the day when you're supposed to prepare your taxes. That's when they are due. I think this year is the 18th. I don't know why. And yet it makes you question the futility of your life. Right? All your hard work, income, suddenly all a good chunk of it going away. There's not a single soul that I have found that enjoys paying taxes. Not a single soul. And you're, you're too, and if you're too young to understand this, stay young forever, okay? Stay young forever. You ever wonder what this country would be like if we actually, if they never got taxed? You know? Like, think about it. You ever wonder how different this country could have been if British never taxed the colonies in the Americas? Instead, America rebelled, no taxation without representation, and a war is declared, all because of taxes. Right? That's how, that's how heated of a subject it is. And I know, like, my sense of history oversimplifies this, but taxes are still a topic of concern. Anytime, uh, anytime so, uh, someone makes us feel like we actually don't belong here in this country, what's the main responses that people usually tend to give? It's two things. Uh, when someone makes us feel like we don't belong here, we, we say, I have my rights because why? I pay my taxes. I've got rights. I'm a citizen here. It's a love-hate relationship we have with this idea of taxation. And here's the thing. No matter where your place of citizenship is, the Bible says that we are ultimately citizens of a heavenly realm, that we're called to belong in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, guess what? There are no taxes. Praise God for that. However, do you exercise your rights as kingdom people? Do you exercise your rights just as much as a kingdom people? There's this tricky balance of how do you live life without being, losing a sense of your identity in God? How do you do this? And it all boils down to where do you actually belong? Where do you ultimately belong? And what does Jesus here, uh, what Jesus does here is he gives us a framework of how to be engaged in the world without losing our sense of identity of where we truly belong in this process. And there's three things I want us to consider today. Is one, this idea of the culture we belong to. Secondly, who is the Caesar that rules in our lives? And third of all, what is the calling that God calls us to? Culture, Caesar, and calling. Let's look at the first part here, culture. So I feel like the cool thing about living in California is how different the culture, how many different cultures that exist here. And here's how I want us to kind of think about culture in, in, to begin with, is I think about pizza. All right? I love pizza, and I can eat pizza like it's air. There's New York style, there's got that fine crust in it. You, you got the Chicago style, that deep dish pizza, it's like savory tomato sauce in it. And then there's the Bay Area style pizza that's more cheesy, uh, less marinara sauce with more veggies on it. And then when I came to uh, Fremont, I noticed that there's a new style of pizza that's Indian pizza. I, I tried it for the first time since I've been up here. It's, it's really different. It's more of a garlicky taste with cilantro on top. The crust is a, is a, like a garlic naan version of it. 
And you know, it's uh, the first time I tasted a bite of it, it was so different, but it was so good. You know, I, I really appreciate it. That's how I see culture. It's still a pizza, but each culture makes it differently. Culture is the fact that we all have different values, but how those values are practiced can look different according to the culture of the time. And when you think about Pharisees and the Herodians, they are both ethnically or nationally Jewish, but they both have individual cultures, right? Because for the Pharisees, these are the purists and they are zealous for the Jewish traditions. They want absolutely nothing to do with the Greco-Roman influence. For them, God is the sole allegiance of their whole lives. So they think anything when their lives dabble into Greco-Roman culture, they think that that's, that's an atrocity. We don't do stuff like that. We want to keep ourselves pure. We belong to God, and so we're devoted to God. None of this culture business. Then on the other hand, you have the Herodians. These guys are wealthy aristocrats who come from the line of King Herod. And the thing is, they are very well immersed into Greco-Roman culture. Some of them married into Greco-Roman families. They have clothing similar to Greco-Roman culture. They know the norms and the customs. They work with the Greco-Roman politicians. And yet here's the thing. Pharisees look at the Herodians as a bunch of sellouts. You guys aren't true to the Jewish culture. And the Herodians will look at the Pharisees and say, you guys are so naive and idealistic. You guys are incredibly unrelatable. It's a culture clash there. They don't really like each other. That's the thing about culture, is that even though things can be practiced differently, what has to be asked is, what is actually being valued? What is actually being valued? Culture is tricky in that way. Like I came from a very conservative church and one of the things that happened at this church is that I would ask, they, they would have this nice building and the Super Bowl is right around the corner just like it is for us. And I would always ask these churches, hey, can we watch the Super Bowl at church? Because we have, there's a big TV, there's enough people that can fit in it. Can we have Super Bowl at church? And you know, the, the elders of that church at that time would tell me, no, 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 Amos, that's crazy talk. It's worldly. Uh, there's commercials that could be a little bit scandalous. Church is God's house. We, we can't have that here. I said, okay, fair enough. I'll submit to my elders. But then FIFA World Cup happens, and suddenly the doors are all open. Soccer is playing on the big screen. I'm like, what happened to God's house? It's interesting, you know, how culture plays out. What are our understandings? What's actually being valued? See, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they are enemies of one another. And yet, for some reason, they try to trap Jesus in his talk. They team up together. Two unlikely parties, willing to even stand side by side each other, team up together to be on this hunt against Jesus. What brings them together? What brings these guys who are at each other's throats together? The thing is, Pharisees and Rodians, they had one common value together. They needed the presence of the temple. They both relied on the temple because for the Pharisees, how could they prove their zealousness for God without the temple? 
Their whole significance is attached to the uh, temple's uh, functions. And yet for the Herodians, yeah, they double with Roman affairs, but only because they have Jewish delegates that they appease to. So they have deep pockets, they donate large sums of money to the temple so that no one can question their Jewishness. They both essentially needed the temple. The temple was not about God for them. Essentially, the temple served as a prop to serve their own agenda. And this is why they come together. And this is the thing. It's easy to turn God into a prop. You know, in Japan, they have what's, uh, in Japan, the style of wedding that they t- traditionally have is called Shinto style, where they, the bride and groom, they, they dry, dress up in kimonos and the traditional uh, Japanese wear. Uh, they get married at a shrine with a, a, a priest that officiates the wedding. But did you also know they have something called Western style weddings? Western style weddings. And in this, uh, the bride and groom, they, they dress up as, you know, Westerners with tuxedos and wedding gowns. Um, and sometimes if they really get into the Western style, uh, the bride and groom will dye their hairs blonde uh, to, to uh, look more like Westerners. And then they always have a pastor who is Caucasian to officiate the wedding. This is called Western style weddings, according to Japan. So, so suspend, this is, I mean, this is obviously cultural appropriation in the largest way possible, but I want you to suspend your judgment for a little bit. What are they observing about our culture? What do they observe about our culture? That perhaps God, just like the Herodians and Pharisees, is just a prop, a stepping stone to get what we really want. And we can all do this so easily. You know, you could wish to be married, and once you're finally married, you can easily turn your spouse into a god for yourself. Or you can go to church all the time, and you pray, guys, can you pray? In, my, in, the, in your community groups, you pray, hey, I'm really desperately looking for a job. Can you pray for a job? And once you get that job, boom, you're out. No more community groups. I'm too busy. God is easily turned into a prop. Guys, you know why I, I pray? It's not the virtual signal to you, like I'm, I'm doing this holy thing and praying. I, I pray because I know how easy it is to turn church into a prop. Rather than to make it about God, I know how easy it is to just make it about numbers. So I pray that my heart would not get hardened. I actually think even today, even though like everything kind of went wrong from a logistical standpoint, I embraced it because of the fact like, oh, this is kind of like what heart of worship is like without all the frills of a screen or we're low tech to begin with anyways, but without all those things. Like we go back to the heart of worship. It's just too easy to turn God into a prop. God is not a prop to use in our lives. He is our life. But the thing is, how do you distinguish between the two? And it's a matter of who actually rules and reigns in your life. Who is the Caesar to your life? Which brings us to part two. 
See, when you think about small talk, you don't talk about what's going happening in Gaza. You don't talk about abortion and etc. These are all hot button issues. They're not something that you casually talk about. And yet when you look at the scene, Jesus is in the hot seat. And he is given a politically charged question. And the question is simply this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Jesus calls them out. Because Jesus understands the kind of question that they're asking. It's a lose-lose situation. If Jesus says yes, then he enrages the Jewish audience because then Jesus isn't being true to God. So if he says yes, the Jewish audience is angered. Perhaps maybe they might even stone him because to pay taxes to a foreign nation was considered a curse of the covenant for disobedience. And not only that, if you are willing to pay this thing called tribute to the foreign nations to protect you, it was considered apostasy. So it's a lose-lose situation if he says yes. Yet if Jesus says don't pay the taxes, Rome would quickly label Jesus as an insurrectionist and swiftly take away his life. All Rome cares about is as as long as you live peacefully, you pay your taxes, then the Jews can still have all their customs and norms. But if anyone defies Caesar, he will be made an example for everyone else. Lose-lose situation here. What's Jesus supposed to do? How's he supposed to respond? So he takes a denarius, a coin before them, And he says, whose likeness and inscription is on it? And the thing is, whoever is the emperor of that time had their face inscribed on all these coins, which is Tiberius at this time. And the inscription was not only the emperor's way of showing his godlike status because everyone had this coin. He wasn't only showing that, but it also was a reminder, who gives you value? Caesar does. The coin is a powerful image here. And so as Jesus asks, whose image and likeness is on it? What does he say? Verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This was a yes and no question. Yet he gives a completely better answer. Render to Caesar means engaging with the government to support the government who largely shapes the culture. Support your government. It's a radical thing that Jesus is saying. Support the government, which, judging by your faces, is not exactly the most inspiring thing that Jesus is telling you to do. Support the government. There's this sociologist named Chris Bader who surveyed Americans to ask what they are afraid of. Okay, this is a sociologist in Orange County, and he surveyed everyone. What are you actually afraid of in 2024? You know what 60, 60% said that they were afraid of? In 2024, 60% said they are afraid of corrupt government officials. 60%. That's the biggest fear. 
And yet, I can't wonder if maybe culturally we all feel the same way. You remember the band um, Rage Against the Machine? And you guys know, it's like this political band that would always put out these songs criticizing whatever the government did. And pretty much they were known to be the band that stuck it to the man. And you, you have all these fans that go out there and like, oh yeah, we love Rage Against the Machine. Forget the government. You know, let's have our individual rights and everything. But the irony is Rage Against the Machine only exists because the government does. They protect the freedom of speech for them. We actually are very invested in the government because at the end of the day, what the government does for us is they allow us to be our own person, our own individuals. So no matter how much we critique it, they actually give us what we actually want. Because think about it, back in the day, you don't rely on governments. You have family clans that you belong to. And within those family clans, you had to do whatever the family wanted. So if your your family is into farming, you became a farmer. If they're into uh, blacksmithing, you became a blacksmith. This isn't like the Disney movies where if you wanted to be an artist or something else, uh, your parents would generally understand after this hard, hard struggle. No. If you disagreed with your family clan, they cut you out of the family. Guess what happens then? You have no protection from the other clans. You have no health insurance because they are the ones that took care of you when you're sick. They are your pension plan. So when the government was formed later on, when we modernized, guess who gave you your individual rights? The government. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are his. And he's calling us to actually support the government, the culture that we exist in. It's nothing new. Because in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 29.7, when the people of God, Israel, were thrown into exile under the Babylonian captivity, God tells Jeremiah in 29.7, I want you to pray for the flourishing of Babylon. I want you to pray and seek the peace and welfare of this city. That's crazy. Like these are the people that captured them. These are the people that are oppressing them. And, Jesus, and, and God tells them, I want you to pray for their flourishing. How can you expect this? That's a big ask. Guys, um, this is a big year for us in terms of how elections go in 2024. It's a big year about who actually get, uh, takes power position of leadership here. And the thing about politics is that it becomes so incredibly easy to demonize the other side. Whoever doesn't align with your politics. And when you add God to the picture, you add God to the mix, those feelings are even more intensified. And the thing about Jesus is he doesn't tell us what political party you have to be affiliated with. Because the thing about Jesus is he offends both conservatives, a.k.a. Pharisees, and liberals, the Herodians. At the very same time, there's no political party that truly aligns with Jesus. Guys, when it comes to uh, abortion, I'm a very, I'm a staunch conservative when it comes to those kind of things. 
When it comes to climate control, I'm incredibly liberal. Just look at the storm. I think there's a climate crisis. When it comes to things like, uh, when it comes to like things like the institution of marriage, I lean right. When we talk about bearing arms, I'm a little bit liberal. I think we ought to have some gun reforms. Yeah, at the end of the day, there's no political party that will align with my convictions. And I'm not here to tell you, you ought to vote like me or think like me. It's just letting you know, nothing. there's no poli- uh, perfect political party that will fit you as well. Instead, the way that I vote, the way that I think about the culture, is you should seek the flourishing of others as God's image bearers. Just like Jeremiah 29. That's what we're called to be, to seek the flourishing of the culture that we exist in. See, what I just did would shock most people, of, you know, would, would, would shock most people, but I feel like for our own context, we might, we might not feel as strongly because many of us come from immigrant families and we have adopted subconsciously or consciously this idea of the model minority that if you just work hard and stay quiet, you'll be okay. Whether consciously or not. Yet I want to emphasize something. What's emphasized in this term, model minority, it's not model citizen, it's not model American, it's model minority. Meaning we'll always be different. And here's the thing about governments and politics here. Two things can happen to us. Either you set so much of your hopes in this world that you become so overly cynical and you want nothing to do with it. I'm just going to do my own thing as long as I just pay my own taxes. I live a quiet life. I don't really care what goes in the culture as long as it doesn't bother me. Render to Caesar the things that are his and to God what is his. It means praying for the flourishing of your city and the culture you exist in. You can't just shut yourself off from it. But don't set your hopes on this world. Because no matter who the Caesar of our time is, no matter what the policies look like, whether things get more progressive or conservative, no matter what your social demographic is, God is Lord over everything. And is that not what Jesus is getting at? Jesus is Lord over everything. You know why God does not need to go on a campaign to get more power? It's because he is power. While the government and politicians may hold positions of authority, God holds all authority. Tech companies might have deep pockets, But God is the wealth. Social media might have all this influence, but all creation declares God's glory. You might think you're the one person, but God has inscripted. You you might think you're the only person uh, willing to seek for God's flourishing, but the thing about you is God has inscripted his image onto you to testify, rendering that All things belong to God. He's inscripted his image onto you. 
to testify that all things belong to God. You and I, we, we live as exiles for a greater kingdom. That's what Jesus is reminding us of here. How do we, how do we um, keep ourselves from the culture, keep ourselves looking too much like the culture, but also not being engrossed in it, that we forget where we belong? How do we have the right balance here? It's a matter of calling. Last point here. What is this calling? I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not a big fan of insincere flattery. It's just not my cup of tea. Because if you truly pay attention to someone's life, I feel like there's always something that can inspire you or something that you can genuinely give compliments about. And it's like when you go to the gym, you know, and people are trying to sell you their membership. What do they often do? First, they make you feel good. They say, oh, wow, your arms are really big. Do you work out? Wow. And then they make you feel bad, but not too bad. They say, oh, wow, you work out. Your arms look really big, but they could be bigger. Would you like to sign up? Insincere flattery here. And I, I think about what Jesus does here. As the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they come up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Buttering up, up for this. They want Jesus to flex his godliness so they can have their way with him. And yet what they quickly misunderstand is that the way of God is not like our way. The way of God is an idiom for salvation. And in the Old Testament, the way of God is a messianic promise that he would do something new. And this is why in the beginning of Mark's Gospel, John the Baptist, he quotes from Isaiah 43, in which he says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. See, the thing is, when John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah anticipates a second and greater exodus. How Jesus will lead his people into a greater promised land. There's something more that God has for all of us. He's calling us home. It's a homecoming. I'm not a big fan of uh, dating shows. I just, I just don't like it. I can't really get into it. But there's this one show I really got into that I feel like everyone should watch. It's called Love on the Spectrum. And you guys seen it? Yeah, you should totally watch it. So much better than, you know, like, uh, what's that? I forget what you guys watch, but so much better. It's about people who have autism that are trying to find relationships. And I love this show because all the characters are openly expressive about how they feel. So like during the day, they'll just say, I'm nervous. Or when they're like small talking, they'll be like, oh, I, I ran out of things to say. I don't know what to say. And there'll be like two minutes of silence. And I love that. I love that so much. Because I feel like for all these other dating shows, they're able to uh, uh, you know, hide all these uh, uh, char uh, character or they're able to hide a lot of things with six-pack abs or what, they, what kind of jobs that they have and perform at. It's easier to hide things. But this show, no one can hide. 
And there's this one scene where the mom talks about their son, their child, and how she wanted to do everything when she found out that her kid had autism, that she wanted to do everything in her power to get him the help that he needs to the right schools, the right personnel, the right uh, people to work with, just so that he can change and improve. And the more she tried, the more she tried to make him improve, the worse he got. And like she confessed in this uh, show that it wasn't until I just stopped and realized I just need to love and support him that it began changing. And I feel like that's home right there. To receive love and support without having having to care about what you need to become. It wasn't until she accepted and loved him for who he was that, that the change actually happens. That's home right there. See, in this world where everyone is telling you what you need to do, what you need to have, who you actually need to know, home is to be in the very presence of someone who doesn't need you to be anything but to be loved. It's the very thing that God is calling us to. He calls us to belong to him. You and I, we forget all the time where we truly belong. Instead of rendering to God what is his, we easily misplace him. And the curse of cutting God out of our lives is to remain in exile. But God provides the way home. The only way home is it comes with a costly fee. Jesus pays a different kind of tax. It's the wages for our sins. And on that cross, his body is taxed with suffering until his very last breath. Why does he do it? Because to him, you are worth every last breath, penny, and denarius. And that's why he can call you home. Friends, we're reminded of where our true citizenship lies in. It's not in the coins that we carry. It's not in what we've accomplished in this life. It's simply in the presence of someone who tells us, you've got nothing left to be. Just be loved.